This is episode 14 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast, helping you to discover how to be older without growing old. And here's your host, turning this whole idea of aging upside down, Lee Mowat. Hello again, and welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast. This is episode 14. With this episode, we start to approach a topic that has risen to national concern of late. Healthcare has become such a massive issue in this country. Between the policies of insurance companies and hospitals, the healthcare consumer is often left at an extreme disadvantage in understanding that care and paying for it. This issue has been rising in importance over the past decade or so to where it has become a national concern. For today, to help me uncover and unpack some of the issues embedded in this problem is Lisa Blackstock. For those of you who have been following this podcast since the beginning, you may remember Lisa from episode number two, where we talked about patient advocacy. Lisa's work exposes her to the healthcare industry and its practices on an almost daily basis. What she is seeing there can't always be described in pretty words. Lisa is in a position to see a much larger picture of our healthcare system than most of us could see in our lifetime. Our discussion today focuses on the healthcare system specifically. This episode is chock full of tips and tricks that you can use to better navigate the healthcare bureaucracies. She reveals practices and tactics that insurance companies and hospitals use to maximize their profits and what we need to look out for in seeking medical care for ourselves and our loved ones. There is just so much information in this discussion that I had to break it up into two parts. This week, we will hear part one, where we talk about the rising cost and what is causing them, medical billing errors, and tips for dealing with those as well. Next week, you'll hear about emergency room practices, how to appeal insurance decisions, and what to watch for during hospital discharges. We'll even mention healthcare politics, plus more. These two episodes are important for everyone to hear and has such valuable information for so many of us. And as always, links and resources that we mention in our discussion today will be available to you on the show notes page for this episode. And you can find the show notes page at innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA14. You can always find the show notes page for any episode by using innergameofaging.com followed by a forward slash and then IGA episode number. Go there to tell us your story or register your own experience about what you will hear here today. Sharing your thoughts and experiences is one of the ways to engage in a dialogue that has become very important in this country. So without further words, 
I give you part one of my conversation with Lisa Blackstock from SoulSherper.net. Today we are here to talk about the state of healthcare. Now, okay. in your line of work, you are regularly confronting healthcare systems, healthcare providers, insurance claims, you are exposed to much more than the average citizen is in terms of healthcare. And so I wanted to pick your brains to understand uh, more accurately what you are seeing in this country regarding healthcare. Well, let's let's go from the top down. Um, can you tell me, uh, from your view, the state of healthcare, not as it relates to any particular issue or item, or just you know where where is it going? I mean, a lot of people are having problems. We understand those problems are increasing. What is the state of our healthcare on a general, almost national basis at this point in time? Yeah, um, well, in general, my experience is that the system, um, because it has no cost controls, and cost controls were not addressed when the Affordable Care Act was being negotiated in 2009 and 2010, the fact that there are no price controls, um, in, in my opinion, is the, the biggest unspoken um, club that, uh, by club, I mean like a stick, mm -hmm. a big stick that a patient and a patient's loved ones have, have no comprehension of. And what that does in many cases is it can um, oftentimes nullify insurance coverage. If you have uh, insurance coverage, and even if you stay in network, um, deductibles are much higher. Mm -hmm. And if you just go in for, you know, a routine um, day surgery, you can find that the pricing, which can be changed um, mm -hmm. every day, uh, privately by every healthcare provider, uh, without advising the patient in advance, that price can change every day in every place. And even though a patient may be going in with a prior authorization from their insurer, they still are basically blind yeah. because they do not know what the cost is going to be. And insurance companies have reserved certain rights that I never really understood until I started uh, looking more closely at insurance claim processing and it, it's very possible to have coverage but still be left holding the financial bag because of a price you were charged on a certain day, mm -hmm. what your medical insurer uh, believes was or was not a um, medical necessity, mm -hmm. despite what your own treating physician may tell you. So I think that the state is one of complete confusion um, one where there is there are not a lot of significant controls in place, and I believe that the healthcare consumer um, is even sinking even deeper into the quicksand. You mentioned a lack of cost controls, of course. Well, 
where does the lack of cost controls come from? Who is who is resisting cost control? Is it the insurance well, companies, the government, the you know, where does the resistance against cost control come from? Okay, well, first, it, it's important to remember that we in this country, we have never had medical cost controls, maybe within an HMO that might be different, but I typically don't deal with HMOs. So we've never had cost controls. It used to be that um, medical providers and medical insurers uh, did offer insurance, did provide services, did not interfere with medical doctors' work. But what happened, um, in my view, since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act in 2010 is there is, um, on the inside of healthcare, there is a, a great concern, and I believe that it's well-founded, that a system with a limited number of providers and beds um, are only going to be able to service a fixed number of patients. And because the patient number has been rising and increasing the demand on the system, I believe that the um, medical insurers and healthcare providers, specifically hospitals and um, and diagnostic facilities, mm -hmm. they have gone out in front, and I believe they're being proactive because they they see a cost system that is spiraling out of control, where I don't know that we can say the government is not concerned about it, but what I can confidently say is that the government has been influenced to a significant extent by, extent by lobbyists mm. that I think that the government is motivated to, to really move on behalf of the American people. The American people do not have um, a real voice in Congress the way lobbyists do because money talks. Yes, and yes. Well, let me let me let me unpack your answer just a little bit more. I want to get drill, drill down a little bit deeper. The cost costs are rising. I'm, I'd like to present some facts that shows how heavy the cost is rising, but the resistance to regulation. Um, is that, you know, the government is is not regulating. Should it be regulating? What's stopping the government from regulating? Does insurance want this regulation? Don't they see costs spiraling out of control? You know, like somebody must see that something is happening that's driving things out of control. Who is not moving? I believe mm -hmm. the insurance companies um, because they're enjoying higher than ever before profits, they're not really motivated to change things because in the short term, they're benefiting tremendously. Mm -hmm. Hospitals, whether they be profit or nonprofit, they have never before experienced the kind of profit margins they have. Uh, the people who run the business aspect of hospitals uh, are oftentimes making more than doctors mm. who are providing on the front line. Doctors, for the most part, have lost their voices because they are employed now as hospitalists, mm. which um, their, their private privileges have been removed. And every young doctor today, for the most part, is going to be employed 
in a capacity or subcontracted in a capacity where they are known as a hospitalist, which is very different from a private physician. Hmm. So because um, because medical insurers are doing extremely well, uh, premiums are higher, deductibles for a subscriber to satisfy before coverage even kicks in is higher. Hospitals are making more money because there are no cost constraints on the costs that they can charge. And I believe that in large part, the physician, the role of the physician has been marginalized. Um, I, I think that there are enough vent, vested interests with clout, money and power who, who far override the voice of the average patient. And when the average patient gets into a position where they need care, they're vulnerable to begin with because they're not well. Interesting. Now, I have a few facts here for you. I'm going to you know, call them facts. They may not be facts. I wanted to see how you feel, felt about them. But I was just digging, some up, uh, digging up some information about the profit margins that the healthcare industry is enjoying these days. Um, the United States ambulance industry makes more money in a year than the entire movie industry does. Yeah, I, I have no trouble believing that because okay. I know bills every day. Here comes, here comes another fact, interesting fact. And again, I hesitate to call them facts. I just want to see what your opinions are. If the U.S. healthcare system was a country, it would be the sixth largest economy in the entire planet. That's right. <laughs> that sounds right. that sounds just so ludicrous. And, uh, and that does ring true to what I hear and what I experience on a daily basis. Here goes one that speaks to what you were saying about doctors. We pay doctors when they provide lots of healthcare, not when they provide good health care. And so, you know, it's the quantity of people they see, not the quality of people or not the quality of service they provide that makes their paycheck. That's correct. And I don't believe that that is the preference of the doctor. I believe that when, when they are contracted, as most doctors are today by hospitals, your specialty physician groups, their reimbursements have been dropping uh, from the insurance industry. So if they want to keep their job and if they want to keep a roof over their head, if they're lucky enough to be in private practice, they're being forced to see more people in less time Mm. so they can just stay even with what they were earning before. Um, And unfortunately, everybody knows that whenever a person is rushed in Mm. in task, it increases the likelihood for error, the likelihood uh, that something would have been missed if more time had been taken. But I believe that that's part of the reason and that's feeding into the statistic that um, medical errors on the rise in this country. Yes, that's another topic I'd like to mention to you. But here goes one. Here goes a a sort of factoid that I dug up that speaks to your issues with the government and politics. It, this one says the U S healthcare industry has spent more than $5 billion on lobbying our politicians in Washington, DC since 1998. That's a yeah, lot of I, money. 
It is. I know just just during the negotiation and passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2009 and 10, the figure just for that time period was $1.2 billion. Wow. That money could be so useful elsewhere. There's, it's, there's, it's, there's a question. I, I mean, for, it boggles my mind, the money that's spent on nothing. Yeah. And and meanwhile, we have so much to spend it on something. So it just boggles my mind. So agreed. So that's that's where healthcare is right now. It's costs are spiraling out of control. We have higher profits than we have ever had before. We have much more confusion navigating the system, and prices change daily. And the consumer is the one who has to sort all this through. Now, let's. I'm not sure how to unpack this neatly because it's all a confusing mess to me when I look at it all from a distance. But again, you're here in this every day, Lisa, and um, I just wanted to get some advice from you. I'd like to start off the next section with a strange question. And this relates to not just hospital administrations, but their medical practices, their decisions, everything. And the question sort of frames it possibly in an incorrect way. You can correct it if you like. Are hospitals dangerous to our health? Uh, Well, in my opinion, what I see on the front line uh, between um, facilitating admission to the hospital through the emergency room, as well as hospital care being given in real time and discharges, I believe that there are more dangers that exist now than before, but I attribute that to the fact that the frontline care providers, whether they be physicians, nurses, physician assistants, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, they are being asked to do more uh, for more patients with less time And that lends itself from anything from people not taking the time to wash their hands Mm -hmm. or sanitize their hands with the gel that Mm -hmm. exists in every room where it's very easy to catch an infection. I see that occurring. I also know that on a a broader level, um, what used to constitute a hospital discharge Say nine years ago, after I had my major brain surgery and Mm -hmm. I was discharged, I felt very comfortable with my discharge planner because I didn't, I know she was not in a rush. I had everything that I needed in writing in front of me. It was explained to me and to my mother and my husband who were with me. And I had to sign and acknowledge after this discharge meeting took place that I understood all of these instructions and everything was spelled out. That does not happen anymore. How long ago was your discharge? Nine years ago. My discharge from the hospital from my accident, my famous accident that changed my life, um, was 12 years ago. And I felt uh, fairly comfortable with my discharge. I was in the hospital for a long time, a month or more. And so I was very anxious to get out of there. But my wife was there and my son was there, I believe. 
and we went over the instructions and I felt fairly confident. I was a bit confused about what I should do for this, the pain, the wound, et cetera, et cetera. But 12 years ago, I felt they did a decent job. Now, I don't can't speak for anybody else, but I am hearing horror stories at this point in time. Um, you probably are exposed to a few of these horror stories where the discharge doesn't quite go the way it should go. More than a few. I mean, more often than not, what I see happening now in hospitals across the country is a hospitalist um, who is always changing shifts with the next relieving person takes over a, a patient's chart. There is not the continuity of care that used to exist with the same physician tracking the same patient. Often hospitalists are under a lot of pressure to once somebody is deemed medically stable, get them out of the hospital, open up that bed for a patient where insurance is going to be reimbursing the hospital more. I've seen cases where the patient doesn't even know they're discharged. The hospitalist will electronically discharge them over their iPad and the nurse comes in to inform the patient, um, you're going home today. Oh. And the patient doesn't have a chance to talk to the doctor, to ask about instructions. There are cases where paperwork is not given, where social workers are under so much pressure to open up a new bed for a higher insurance reimbursement because the, the increasing number of days that a patient stays in the hospital, in general, the less they're being reimbursed by insurance. So those first few days where testing and, and procedures, possibly surgery, but you know maybe some other kind of medical procedure is performed, that's where most of the money is made in a hospital stay. And I regrettably see the role of the social worker or the discharge nurse basically turn into one where for fear of losing their job by not opening up a bed, they will come in, tell somebody they're being discharged, hurry them up. I've seen cases where paperwork has not been provided. I have people who call me from, from their bed saying, <laughs> uh, what what should we be asking? What should we be looking for? It's I always think it's very important when someone is being discharged that they understand what their present health is, what follow-up care they mm. need to be sure that their discharge physician has written those discharge orders, not only for their care, but any medical equipment that might be necessary, as well mm. as prescriptions. Because if that's not done at the point of discharge, once a person leaves the hospital, in their system, you are discharged and the instruction that you're given is to follow up with your regular care provider yes. who doesn't um, have the records of what your hospitalization was about in many cases. Yes, I experienced that during my discharge. But a question for you, on the other side of this quick discharge situation there is um for those of us who are who return to the hospital because of a faulty discharge or because the issue wasn't addressed isn't there some sort of penalty levied against hospitals for people coming back for the same there condition is. okay there, there is in but there unfortunately there there is a way in the law to skirt that oh. and i 
attribute that personally to uh, the influence of lobbyists. Uh, right now, um, Medicare patients, if they are readmitted to a discharge facility within 30 days of their leaving for the same condition, the hospital is penalized. Mm. But I believe that um, that there have been financial controls put in place by financial people who run hospitals where even if this happens, the profit that the hospital is making can offset that penalty. Ah. And, and in addition, the other glitch that occurs and um, most seniors and, and loved ones of seniors aren't aware of the whole issue of being out of hospital under something called observation status, mm. which is not does not mean that a person is an admitted inpatient. Under observation status, a person can stay at a hospital for uh, less than three consecutive midnights. So you could be there for, for three days and two nights. And only beginning with a, a new law called the Notice Act that went into effect in September, mm -hmm. um, be, that means beginning in January, hospitals will be required to tell Medicare patients who are under observation status that they are in fact under observation status, which means that their Medicare Part A hospital coverage is not in effect. Oh. So if a person is, and I, I see this happen very um, often with elderly people, um, if someone goes to the emergency room and has pneumonia, mm -hmm. um, say they just have fluid in one lung. Well, there are certain requirements that a patient must pass in order to be fully admitted with all insurance covering. But if it involve if a pneumonia involves only one lung as opposed to two, hospitals have been instructed by their hospital administrator superiors that that does not qualify for a formal inpatient admission. Oh. So they will um, up until well only beginning in January will hospitals or people in the emergency room, I'm not exactly sure who the, the job is going to fall to, mm -hmm. they will be required to tell a patient when they are staying overnight under observation status. That's all that the law dictates is that they be told. The Medicare manuals have not been updated to indicate this. I think it's going to be a very weak effort. I think hmm. it's going to be um, an, an honor system type of implementation where being told about observation status as opposed to have that being explained to the patient and probably the family and loved ones of the patient because generally patients are too sick if they're in the That's emergency right. room, not now, well enough to. Obs observation status what does that actually mean? When you're in observation status, does that mean that you're not covered under insurance? It means that for observation status applies to Medicare. But okay, I, do okay. I 
expect to see in the future private insurance companies employing these types of I mean, they're really business strategies. Yes, yes, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> and unless the patient is with someone who knows how to ask the right questions, you will find that things that you automatically think you're covered for is not the case. But going back to to your original point about hospitals being penalized if a Medicare patient is discharged and then has to be readmitted within mm -hmm. 30 days for the same condition, mm -hmm. well, if the patient was there to begin with under observation status and never formally admitted, that does not count as a oh. readmission. Ah, okay. Interesting. There's a lot of little nooks and crannies here. <laughs> you know, it's almost, I mean, I, I hate to to liken this to shopping for a car or real estate, hmm. but you know when you walk into the open house or onto the car lot, you you see an item that you want to purchase or you're interested in purchasing similarly to when someone goes to a hospital or to a doctor they know they're going to a place where they can get what they need and and i think there's a tremendous difference between um you know a consumer good versus health care of a human being mm. but um if you don't if you don't know the questions to ask or the questions that someone needs to ask on your behalf, in my experience nationally, it's a very unfortunate and um, very unconscionable change of events where you are at the mercy of people who have strategized medical care, medical pricing, and medical insurance. And your doctor who who took an oath to do no harm. I have seen many cases where hospitalists will admit to me off the record that if they knew that practicing medicine was going to be like this, they never would have gone into it because there is interference between the type of care that a doctor wants to provide, but between insurance company, prior authorizations, uh, their own hospital administrator to whom they must answer to financially as to why a certain person was kept for a certain number of days and what treatments were prescribed and what the bottom line um, mm. was to the hospital. Um, it's, I, I would love to be interviewed on uh on a major network who or radio station that would be brave enough to tell the truth about what's going on with healthcare, uh, I am. You know, well, I, I I don't think they would be interested because I think that it's very difficult to find um, impartial media. Mm -hmm. but political process works, and I do have some experience with this because I worked on Capitol Hill for three years in the political system mm -hmm. after I graduated from college, and it's only become more sophisticated and more rife with money and influence. Um, I don't believe that the Affordable Care Act is going to improve, but on the other hand, I have to say that um, 
me not identifying with any um, typical political party. When I hear a Republican say we're going to repeal the Affordable Care Act and fix it, that shows complete, utter ignorance mm -hmm. of how entrenched the system is in the status quo, yes. how it is on a spiral. There's very little that the average person can do in a large sense to change that spiral. And I believe that the American people are being gravely misled by the people who are supposed to be telling us, you know, when a, when a politician's platform is, I'm going to improve what you've got, or I'm going to completely destroy what you've got and replace it with something that's better, that, that is simply not the truth. And I think that that is unconscionable when you're dealing with the health of your citizenry. <laughs> it, it, is, it is immoral. I, I, I believe it's correct because um, we all have, but especially the government has, in what I feel is a moral obligation to, you know, to address these issues and to take care of its citizenry in, in this manner. And if it's not doing that, it is obviously failing. In this particular case, you know, our country is falling behind so many other countries in a matter of healthcare, simply in terms of cost. Cost is just oh, outrageous. And, you know, we pay the most money for the least benefits and value. That's I'd like right. to I'd like to talk to you about um, I'd like to stay on the topic of hospitals. The um, I wanted to talk about medical billing errors. The okay. um, you've seen many things there when someone's discharged and he receives a bill. You know, tell tell us some of the things practices that you see hospitals doing um, that support billing errors. That you know, how do we? How do we protect ourselves against billing areas? What are some of the horror stories and things of that stuff? Okay, well, the reality is most most medical bills do contain errors. Um, I know that uh, part of, I believe, part of the reason is because people who are actually responsible for bill, billing coding, mm -hmm. um, a lot of that is outsourced, and these are people who receive certifications on online and they're basically working from home on their computer with no oversight so to me that that is um, hmm. a perfect situation for an error to be committed oftentimes um, when it comes to a hospital bill what I do and I, I recommend to all people that you before you're going to get several bills in the mail hospitals have a bill doctors have bills uh, you know, um, pathology has bills. Anesthesiology, yeah. Yep. Um, it, there, there's a bill for everything. <sighs> and um, just just to to go back a little bit to show you how I believe there's such a sophisticated business strategy in place that keeps the consumer always having to catch up. I recently saw for the first time about a month ago an ambulance bill that came in in two pieces. One, the biggest part of the bill was for the transportation to bring somebody to the emergency room. And that's the typical bill that I'm used to seeing. Now, some companies are adding separate supplemental bills that break down the medical care 
that was provided to the passenger, and they are charging independently for that, not only for the actual care, but for the supplies. So if someone receives oxygen in an ambulance, not only are they being charged for, you know, X liters of oxygen for X number of minutes, but they're being charged for the oxygen mask. Interesting. it's really, really getting out of hand. Now, in one sense, we can say that it's getting out of hand. Now, our our ambulance bills, like I said before, the ambulance industry has made more money than Hollywood has. Mm-hmm. And we can say that the costs are spiraling out of control. But ask, ask the question, should they be charging for the supplies they give us? I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, like, they've got to, somebody's got to pay for something. And of course, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I am not advocating, uh, and I should make this clear. I do not believe that medicine in this country should be socialized and there not be any reasonable profit made by the people providing, mm-hmm. you know, reasonable, necessary. Yep at an affordable price. The problem that I have is there is no transparency. There is so much confusion. And the the healthcare consumer is always playing catch up. And there is a deliberate, I I see it firsthand every day. Mm -hmm. There is a deliberate business or several business plans, depending upon whether we're talking about a hospital employing hospital doctors as hospitalists, whether we're talking about imaging facilities, lab stations that that simply draw blood and send mm-hmm. them out, um, the pharmaceutical industry, there is absolutely no transparency. There is no attempt by the healthcare providers or the government, in my opinion, to have a uniform standard of understanding of what healthcare is and is not, and all of these tricks that that exist. I mean, for example, there's something that medical insurers are still able to have underwritten in their policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but base it's the inclusion of something called a modifier. So even if um, a patient goes to a hospital, they're pre-authorized, they're in network. If there is an item on their bill that exceeds a certain percentage of what the insurance company deems in its small, small print exceeds the modifier that it considers a reasonable and, and fair price, the patient is completely responsible for that charge. And I had a situation where I had a um, a client who needed a cardiac tissue biopsy mm-hmm. and a very small, um, like very hard uh, plastic piece, not even a half inch long by an eighth of an inch wide that needed to be used to securely safely and from a sanitary point of view, encapsulate that tissue and Mm -hmm. then have the doctor remove that. That item was priced at just under $20,000. The insurance company threw it out because 
under a technicality, which I've never heard a medical insurance agent or the Affordable Care Act or any insurer or hospital talk about, um, the hospital said, um, you know, the, the insurance company did not accept our price. It exceeded their modifier. So this is what I'm looking for for you. That's when I have wow. to wait for, you know, what is what is considered a fair and customary price, which I believe is what should be paid. Interesting. Now, you just related a story where um, an item was used that exceeded the insurance company's expectation and therefore fell onto the patient. How yes. does a patient consume that kind of yeah, you know, I mean, there's no way for me to consume that $20,000 because the hospital, right. the insurance company won't pay for it. I cannot consume that. Well, no, first of all, one one thing that, that I always advocate is um, every single ne- medical cost is negotiable, regardless of whether you have a, a policy with an insurance company that is contracted with your provider Every single cost is negotiable. Now, understanding how to negotiate those costs is a little bit of a specialty. I've actually had a lot of personal injury attorneys contact me because in their settlements, where obviously people are injured and and there are high costs involved, personal injury attorneys, to my knowledge, have no information or training or resource of how to negotiate a hmm. a fair and customary price but there is a way to do it unless you the patient the healthcare consumer or someone on your behalf lets a doctor or a hospital or a pharmaceutical company know that you understand everything is negotiable and you understand that there are a series of steps in place, steps where you can appeal, mm-hmm. which most people don't know. Yeah, we'll um, get into that. I, this is one of the things I wanted yep. to talk to you about. So, um... But there, there are ways, but unfortunately, they're, they're not very widely known. And uh, a lot of people still don't understand Unfortunately, I have a feeling that if the media covered um, the work that I do and that my colleagues do, we would be much better known. But we would prove we, we do prove a real threat to the tremendous profits that are being made now, yes, primarily the backs of the middle class of this country. That's probably why you may have, be getting difficult times in publicizing your services because you're not welcomed in you know in terms of the profits the healthcare industry is making. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely. I mean, fortunately for social media, there are things like websites and blogs mm-hmm. and Facebook pages and Twitter and yep. Uh, yep. I I was just retained by a woman who lives in London who was in Los Angeles earlier this year on business and unfortunately had to have emergency surgery and her she her medical coverage in the United Kingdom is not accepted in this country hmm. because it it wasn't it's paid. Not, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she hired me to negotiate her hospital bill, her physician bills, 
her uh, pathology bills and her ambulance bill, which I am in the process of doing right now. Interesting. Now, we were, we started off this segment with just talking about the hospital billing errors. Um, I read somewhere, again, I do not know what is fact and what is fiction when I take it off the internet, but someone suggested that at least 90% of the hospital bills sent out have some form of errors on them. That sounds like an extremely high number. It's very high. I have to tell you that in my 27 years of being involved in this kind of work, I personally have never seen a medical bill, whether it be hospital, diagnostic facility, physician, or pathology, where I have not found an error. Interesting. Never. Interesting. Now, whether whether that is deliberate due to lack of training, due to people having to work too fast and too hard, um, I I can't speak because I'm I'm sure. not sure. Inside. But anybody who pays a hospital bill, any any medical bill, without requesting an itemized breakdown of their charges as well as their their personal health information record that went behind the care that was received that resulted in that bill, I I will guarantee you, you will be at a disadvantage. Interesting. As a patient. Now, we, we just said some words about billing errors, but I wanted to check on another side of this as well. Um, I started off this segment by asking, are hospitals a dangerous place? What about medical errors? What's the, what do you see there in terms of the actual care given? Is that mm-hmm. uh, is that compromised as well? I know we have less attention. The doctors have left less attention to patients at this point in time. They're rushed through. The decisions that make up our medical care, is that being compromised as well? I believe it is because the care providers are not in the driver's seat. They are not the ones who can make the decisions the way they used to. Now they've got to deal with hospital administrators. They've got to deal with doctors working for medical insurance companies saying, well, you may think this is medically necessary, but I don't. I know that nurses are being required to cover more patients, Mm. um, which increases work. I found instances at at quality hospitals where I'll walk in and I'll see an IV bag connected to the IV line in one of my clients, and I always check the label on the bag and find somebody else's name on it. Oh, (laughs) are you serious? I... What are, what are some of the other things that you've experienced here? That sounds like an interesting one. What is a, tell me some more. Um, you know, I, I find what, what I have been told off the record is people who, who go into the profession of healing, whether they are, are doctors, nurses, uh, physician assistants, physical therapists, um, you know, emotional therapists, mm-hmm. chaplains, I even people who comprise the lift team, you know, the people who are trained to safely move people from mm-hmm. bed into a cardiac chair. I really don't know of of any of these people who have not gone into these fields because they like interacting with people and they want to help people. But when you take people 
who are healers or facilitators for healers. And if you squeeze them and ask them to do too much for less money in a shorter amount of time, you're going to create a dangerous environment. That's and absolutely that correct. That's what ab- I absolutely correct. Am- that's what I'm observing. I do not think that doctors are more reckless, that nurses are less caring, that the person who comes to serve your meal is any less caring. But these are the people um, in the system who I believe are the backbone, and I believe that their back is collectively being broken because of that interests. I, I'm reminded of I'm reminded of a story. You're saying these people went into the field for good, honest, moral reasons, and are finding an environment that is essentially changing them inside, changing their motivations. And I'm reminded of a story, an experiment that was done several years ago, many years ago at a college. Jesuit priests. They were. Um, at a dormitory housing Jesuit priests, they said um, they planted a homeless man between the path from the dormitory to the university where the lecture was being given one day. And they said the, the lecture is going to be delayed um, about 15 minutes, but we'd appreciate if you got there on time. The Jesuit priests on that particular day, when they thought they were early, paid so much more attention to the homeless man, donated what they could. The next day, next week or whatever, the same experiment was experiment was done, but in the opposite time. The lecture was now going to start 15 minutes earlier than the priests had anticipated, and they mm-hmm. had to rush to the dormitory. Nobody paid attention to the homeless man. No one mm. spoke or, yeah. So we understand even with the best of hearts, when we are rushed and pressed in our own situation, things are going to change and not for the better. And so I can see that in my own life as well. So I agree with you, Lisa. I mean, uh, one one thing, I, I'm just going to add this. Uh, I think it's important because the EpiPen controversy. Oh, yes. Recently, <laughs> you know, I, I think it was a, a week to two weeks ago um, after the uh, the uh, the chief executive of, of EpiPen who I believe is the daughter of someone who serves in Congress, yes. uh, appeared in, in front of a, uh, a congressional committee and, you know, heard what, what I believed was just a, a canned dog and pony show to, to scold her, uh, to try to give the, the voting public some semblance of hope that, that they're, elected officials actually cared about them. Well, the final analysis, and this wasn't covered very widely in the news, the final settlement that the, um, I believe it, uh, uh, Mylan Pharmaceuticals, Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. creates EpiPen, they were fined by the U.S. government, I mean, in in the tens of millions of dollars for uh, the price gouging and all of this. But if you actually ran the numbers to see how much more the company made by the increase versus what their penalty was, they still ended up far, far ahead 
Ah, and yeah. the media never really covered it from that angle. The the woman who is the executive of the pharmaceutical company is still there making her money. Mm. Um, I know that EpiPen, and uh, I think what was a very poor public relations effort after the price increase was announced and uh, the huge public relations nightmare that ensued <laughs> after, they said, well, all right, we're going to offer a special online voucher for lower income people. And it's a $200 voucher. So we will help you pay for the two pack EpiPen. Mm-hmm. But the reality is the price was $200. They had increased it to $600. So even if someone used the $200 coupon, they were still paying Way, double way more than they, they should, yes, yes, yes. But, but this kind of analysis is not being done by the media. And, uh, it, you know, to me, because I see people being harmed from a care point of view and also seriously from a financial point of view, I find it extremely distressing. Um, I know how to help people, but I can help people one-on-one. Yes. And then yes. there are a lot more patients than than there are advocates who understand what's going on in the system. Okay, let's wrap up part one of this conversation. But please be sure to join us next week when we continue. You won't want to miss what Lisa has to say about emergency rooms or how insurance companies reduce their costs at our expense or ways you can appeal insurance decisions and even healthcare politics. But before you listen to part two of this conversation, head over to the show notes page for this episode. There you will find additional support material to help you decide how this all relates to you. You can also share your experiences or tell us how you feel about the topics that were discussed in this episode. This is especially important if you don't quite agree with some of the things you may have heard here today. I would like to present an accurate, balanced picture, and sharing your thoughts is a way to do that. And you can find the show notes page for this episode at innergameofaging.com. IGA14. Please be sure that you have subscribed to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download it from. Share this podcast on your social network to help spread the message of older, not old. And if you have not done so already, leave a review in iTunes. These reviews help others to discover this podcast and its message. You can also contact me directly using lee at innergameofaging.com. You won't want to miss next week as we conclude this conversation on healthcare topics that will most definitely relate to you. So until next time. Thanks for listening to the Inner Game of Aging podcast with Lee Mowat. Check out more content by going to theinnergameofaging.com. 
That's the inner game of aging, no spaces.com. Stay with us as we learn the many ways of being older without growing old. 